PM board bombs. Now, here's doctors Iltafat Hussein and Blake Briggs. Welcome back to another EM Board Bombs podcast, where we continue to drop uh, Board Bombs pearls. I am Iltafat Hussein. I'm joined here by the great Dr. Blake Briggs. What's up, Briggs? Ready for launch sequence. Let's go. Initiating. Initiating now. Flaps engaged. Are we in Houston or are we in Florida right now? I was just confused by that. No, no, no. Okay, anyways, moving on. All right, for each 15 to 20-minute episode, you gain high-yield board knowledge. As we like to say, come for the STEM, stay for the content. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram. We're at EM Board Bombs. We've amassed thousands of followers. It's very nice. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yes. And as usual, hey, let's plug our uh, premium podcast as well, EM Rapid Bombs. If you enjoy EM Board Bombs and you want a TikTok version of our podcast, that's what our Rapid Bombs podcast is. I think we've hit over 120 podcast episodes just on EM Rapid Bombs. Mm -hmm. Each episode is just... Two to four minutes long. It's pretty short. You know, some episodes around five minutes. We drop high-yield board bombs. You get about four episodes a week. So you almost get a new podcast delivered to you daily. It's pretty awesome. Hey, uh, Dr. Briggs, um, who's EM Rapid Bombs for? Tell us quickly. Hey, so it's for people who would rather get short bursts of learning done via audio form while driving, working out, walking the dog, playing with their cat too if they don't like dogs or, you know, we appreciate both type of pet owners. We have had signups range from medical students to residents to seasoned attendings. So who is EM Rapid Bombs not for? Well, that's if you're really into detailed, thick pathophysiology and want to know the nitty-gritty details of every disease pathology, chemical arrangement, uh, you know, the SN2 backside attack. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, we're not we're not getting into that stuff. I mean, yeah, there's just like yeah, some yeah. superficial pathos like, like I had on some of yeah. my ocular trauma, yeah. which was kind of fun, and I got to bring it up uh, with my ophthalmologist on call the other day. But yeah, we're not getting into the no, 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 uh, detailed, no, no, uh, no. detailed. No, stuff. these are short podcasts, no longer than four to five minutes, and there are plenty of other paying podcasts you can sign up for for hour long episodes. But if that's not you, you want the two to four minute episodes, you could sign up for EM Rapid Bombs. And you can do that at emrapidbombs.supercast.tech and look at the show notes of this podcast as well for a direct link. You can also find the link on our host website, EM Board Bombs, as well. For sure. Hey, a way somebody described it to me recently is that, and we changed our description on our website mm-hmm. because of the way it was described to me, is yeah. they said it's like drip learning. Ooh. You know, we already do a lot of learning, like, you know, the whole phrase that we hear in medicine where it's bolus learning or you're drinking from a fire hose. You know, the nice thing about the podcast when it's three to five minutes long, you get it almost daily, is it's a nice drip. It's a drip way to learn, you know. Mm. Hey, uh, Dr. Briggs, you ready for this topic? Please, entertain me. A 34-year-old, otherwise healthy female, presents to the ED with fever, hypotension, shortness of breath, and pitting edema in both of her lower legs. Mm. She states that she started a new diet and fitness combination. It's called Kilokinase <laughs> dash ATP up, AKI down. <laughs> it's again, remember, it's a diet fitness combination. I believe the diet part is the ATP up, AKI down. I don't know if the folks knew what that meant, but she says this new diet and fitness fad started on TikTok and she saw that many were doing it. So she figured, why not? Mm. The fitness aspect, it requires her to be in close proximity with others. 
something she hasn't done because of COVID in a while. And she has noticed a few colds over the last few weeks. So she's had some viral symptoms here over the last few weeks. Mm. Which of the following is the best test to diagnose this patient's condition? Is it A, cardiac catheterization, B, cardiac MRI, C, cardiac biopsy, or D, echocardiography? Dr. Briggs, what's the correct answer? Correct answer here is going to be choice B, cardiac MRI. Hey, guess what we're talking about today? <sighs> Myocarditis. I can tell you're really excited. <laughs> I'm just so, you know, I am already checked out. I'm, uh, I'm just, look, I'm being real. I'm like well rested and everything. You know, Dr. Briggs, mm-hmm. this isn't one of those podcasts we're doing late at night. No, no, no. But man, this is, you know, myocarditis. It's kind of heavy stuff. When's the last time you were this disinterested in a podcast with me? I already know what the answer is. Hopefully you remember. Oh, no. What was this? I just remember the feeling I had, but I don't remember the actual pod. It was pediatric EKGs. There you go. There you go. Oh. 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 Hey, let's get going here. We got a lot to talk about. So you know what the reason I'm arguing for why we need to talk about this? Why? Why? the... Most common cause of acute heart failure in patients less than 40 years old. Ah, yes. And look, that's why we had the stem the way we had the stem. Yes, also, you're right. Also, you want to you hit you another uh, pearl here to remember on the test? What? This will cheer you up. You love these stats when I do this. You love this. I do. I'm I the do. trivia I guy, do. remember? So right. it's also been recognized as a frequent cause of sudden cardiac death, up to about 20% in young adults. That's a big Huge. number. Huge. Big number here. I also do feel like it's one of those things where we always, when someone young dies and they had a fever or something and they just die, mm-hmm. it's, it's probably myocarditis. It's such a nebulous condition and it's so it nebulous. Is. It's, it, it is so much more nebulous than they teach in med school. Yeah, it really is. But you know, that's why it's important to know. And that's why it's important to know. Yeah. Hey, guess what? Myocarditis is inflammation of the cardiac muscle and it's caused by a variety of conditions. Mm. That's pretty much it. If you were listening to TikTok, that'd be it. That'd be it. But we're going to get into it some more. Yeah, we're going to get into it. So it has a variable presentation, ranging from acute to chronic, inflammation, to focal, diffuse, myocardial involvement. And, you know, despite the frightening facts I just said, that it's, you know, common cause of heart failure, common cause of sudden cardiac death, it's very elusive, especially in children. And this is likely because most cases are mild, most resolve without any sequelae, or sequelae, depends if you're from Canada or United States, and those patients do not seek medical attention. In 2013 alone, there were an estimated 22 cases per 100,000 worldwide. That's more than aortic dissection, much more. So you have to know it. We have a cool handout on the website that covers some of the big details of myocarditis. So we're just going to hit the highlights here and make it worth your while. Let's get into some of the pathophysiology. Why don't you do that? Yeah. So one of the interesting things here is, uh, you know, uh, COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 related myocarditis gets a lot of play. And I think the general public is learning more and more that viruses can cause myocarditis. I, I think what they didn't realize, though, is that it's more than just SARS-CoV-2. Um, oh, for sure. You know, Coxsackie B virus, adenovirus, you know, CMV, Epstein-Barr, that's an, another big one, HIV, parvovirus B19. There's so many viruses that can cause myocarditis. Some of the other causes of myocarditis include bacteria, fungi. 
parasites, autoimmune, and even drug-induced. It's pretty crazy. Um, We can't even list out all the different things. And don't memorize any particular ones. Um, Hey, if you are in internal medicine rounds, you would have to know all these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's emergency medicine. Yeah, we don't do that. We don't do that. This is such an emergency medicine podcast. It's like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff and you just have to know what causes it. Yep. There you go. And how to treat it. So due to the vastness of potential causes of myocarditis, there's not a single red flag that we can reliably remember when collecting a history and suspecting myocarditis. So really, you need to focus on the presentation and the HPI more. That's going to help you with your overall workup of these patients. For sure. And getting into that presentation, you have to know that acute myocarditis is really defined as a condition with symptoms of heart failure over three months or less. And that's in the textbooks and most sources, not very helpful to us in the ED. You know, patients present before there's any clear evidence of heart failure in a lot of cases. There's a high variability to the presentation, ranging from general fatigue to straight up fulminant heart failure. And there's no epidemiologic studies to help us define what are the most common presenting symptoms. You know, as we were saying earlier, like in the question stem, symptoms can range from systemic disease like fever, headache, chills, myalgias, and they can overshadow the more subtle cardiac signs, leaving it undiagnosed. There can also be a significant overlap with uh, the cousin of myocarditis, which is pericarditis. Mm. And we send a lot of patients home with pericarditis. Honestly, we send a lot of people home with undiagnosed pericarditis. Right, and right. some patients might present with symptoms such as, you know, retrosternal chest pain or tachycardia out of proportion to their fever, suggesting myopericarditis. And we have a handout on the website for pericarditis. Really suggest you check it out. It actually talks about distinguishing between pericarditis and myocarditis and also talks about, it also talks about which cases of pericarditis you should admit out of concern for more sinister causes or concern for myocarditis. So that's really helpful. We suggest looking at it. The crazy thing is, is that when you learn in med school about, hey, there's this viral prodrome, and that's what happens, like, it's kind of like vestibular neuritis, like you're sick for like a few weeks before, and then you get this, you know, and unfortunately, those symptoms are only associated like 40% of the time with cases, so that's not very helpful. Probably the most important rule here is what, Iltifat? It's going to be the tachycardia. So tachycardia out of proportion of fever, it's a good rule to use when you're approaching these patients. In general... Over the years of practicing EM, and you're starting to realize this and already probably have, Dr. Briggs, you don't worry as much about your hypotensive patient and even your febrile patients as much because you feel pretty good about you know how to handle those patients. It's that tachycardia that won't go away Absolutely. that concerns you more um, as you progress in your career. And especially this tachycardia out of proportion of fever is something to think about. And, you know, in a European study of 3,000 adult patients with suspected myocarditis, the most common presenting symptom was dyspnea, 72%, while only 32% reported chest pain. Again, that's why we said shortness of breath in our STEM for these patients. So we're talking about tachycardia here, dyspnea, that's another thing that you should look out for. As for chest pain, it's usually a result of the pericarditis. Myocarditis can mimic myocardial ischemia on EKG, though. Can you get into that a little bit, especially in regards to heart failure? Yeah, so in regards to heart failure, fatigue and decreased exercise tolerance are typically the earliest symptoms, which are nonspecific, right? There can be a quick progression within days to weeks to right and left heart failure, manifesting in pulmonary congestion, JVD, reduced cardiac output, and peripheral edema. 
But just know this, this is so important, you know, and I see this every single day, and I was victim to it when I was a med student and an early intern, is that, you know, when you go into a room and you ask somebody, hey, what are the signs of heart failure? What do you think the number one sign people mention all the time is? They're always going to say, oh, it's, uh, you know, edema in the lower legs. Of course. But how often have you and I seen such rapid and early onset heart failure where there's no time for a buildup of edema? All the time. Right. And and just know that just because you don't see edema, you know, you still got to look for JVD. You still have to listen for a murmur. I know that sounds silly to some people, but you still have to look for these other signs that are very subtle. And the patient, all they could tell you is, hey, I just feel short of breath at night and when I walk up the steps. And that's very nonspecific. Why don't you talk about some of the uh, other issues on exam and what you'd find out? Uh, you know, arrhythmias is another thing. We talked about this a little bit already, but sinus tachycardia is going to be your most common arrhythmia that you're going to see, followed by various atrial arrhythmias. There are no specific findings on exam other than to look for signs of acute heart failure. Like we talked about a new murmur, volume overload, JVD, Oscillating rails, you know, suggesting Rawls. pulmonary Rawls. edema. Rales or Rales? <laughs> thought it was Rales. Raleigh is in North Carolina. You know, it's uh, Sir Walter Raleigh from. Okay, anyways, we're not going to get into that. No, we're not. So, a summary of the exam: Look for signs of pericarditis and heart failure. If a patient has new onset heart failure and is less than forty you should really be thinking myocarditis on your differential. And now you're listening to this podcast, you're saying, oh, Dr. Briggs and Dr. Hussein are giving us all these nebulous ways to (laughs) diagnose this. How in the world am I actually going to make the diagnosis? Dr. Briggs, can you just get to it? Yeah, so here's the deal. We're stuck with a disease process that has no specific or sensitive markers to rule it out in the ED. Oh, so, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Again, you, you know where this is leading which is to. why this is such a difficult one. <laughs> you know where this is leading to, right? What are you going to do? A shotgun? Do? Are we, where's yes. the shotgun? I, I'm hearing it load here. Yeah, grab. <laughs> Order everything. The shotgun <laughs> approach. <laughs> Shot. I'll make I'll make that sometimes when one of my residents just orders every <laughs> test you know I just I take my hand I'm just like are you just is this ching is this the shotgun yeah you you pop the, you're popping the 12 gauge I'll make this is not the sniper yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no it's not a sniping test this is a shotgun so you're gonna order everything it would be best if you throw a big net and hope you catch something <laughs> Oh, gosh. Inflammatory markers are what we're stuck with, along with your usual chest pain fever workup. So EKG, troponin, BNP, you know, CRP, ESR, CBC, CMP, chest x-ray, they're all useful. And so you're telling me CRP, <laughs> ESR are actually useful here. They actually might be useful for oh, the first time ever. If I have another lecture with <laughs> one of my residents about someone with just elbow pain and the ESR, CRP being done. But for this, it's useful. For this, it's useful. For this like is actually it. useful, oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. Okay. So yeah. silly. So EKG. There's going to be overlap with pericarditis findings, like we said. Look for signs of ischemia, though, much like you would do for you know acute coronary syndrome. EKG is abnormal in up to 40% of cases of myocarditis, with the most common arrhythmia encountered being sinus tachycardia, as we said, followed by very nonspecific rhythms like atrial tachycardias, PACs, PVCs, AFib, etc. If you can do a bedside echo, even better. Look for a qualitatively reduced ejection fraction. Look for focal wall motion abnormalities, LV dilation, pericardial effusion, all that. And, you know, as we were joking about earlier, although they're elevated in many other conditions and they're nonspecific, 
ESR and CRP have been found to be elevated in 99% of patients with myocarditis, which is pretty neat. The troponin is also commonly elevated in patients with myocarditis as well. A chest x-ray can demonstrate pulmonary edema, it can show cardiomegaly, it can show focal infiltrates concerning for pneumonia as well as a cause of myocarditis, right? And here's the kicker. This is so important. This is such a classic stem. I've seen it in real life too. Coronary angiograms indicated in those with ST segment elevation consistent or suspicious for an MI, right? Right. But if you have myocarditis, guess what the cath's going to be? Clean. Clean as a whistle. And this is such a critical point. Myocarditis and Takasubu syndrome should be strongly suspected in those with ST segment changes on EKG, but a normal coronary angiogram. And isn't that neat? That's pretty cool. Isn't that neat? Why isn't that neat? Oh, you're not getting the joke. I'm talking about the forest, the forest guy in the YouTube. What? Oh, <laughs> no, you didn't say it right. No, no, you didn't say what? Oh, what am I supposed no. to say? Would you just look at that? <laughs> hold on, hold on. Just... Would you just look at that, Dr. Briggs? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we need to have a show note link here to that YouTube video <laughs> making the reference. It's oh, a very funny. PG video that I think it's our hilarious. listeners would love. Oh my god, the nurses showed me that one time, and I was dying in the ED. Right. Hey, hey, what's the deal so. with the most accurate test for myocarditis? This is getting into our question stem. Right, right. So, endomyocardial biopsy is going to be your most accurate test, but that's not something you're going to be doing in the ED, uh, Doctor Briggs. Oh, I thought that was an ACGME required procedure. No, you are not pulling out the LP needle for that. Uh, yeah, we're not going sub xiphoid okay. or anything Sorry. crazy there. Again, not available to ED physicians. Don't use it in your decision making. <laughs> Cardiac MRI instead has emerged <laughs> as a recent recent study of choice in patients with suspected myocarditis. So if the tests ask what is the most accurate test, it is the endomyocardial biopsy. If it picks first line for diagnosis and asks you which one you should use to make, you know, the diagnosis in the ED setting, you need to pick MRI. For sure. Hey, so Dr. Briggs, can you just bring, say, like, when should you suspect this? Like, what's the bottom line here? Because I feel like we've been dancing around this uh, still. So the bottom line is myocarditis should be suspected in patients with or without cardiac signs who have the following. Increased troponin, ischemic EKG changes, a new arrhythmia and evidence of reduced EF or focal wall motion abnormalities on echo. The diagnosis should be intensely suspected in those with a very low risk for ACS, young people and children. Intense. Intensely. Yet there are no signs and symptoms of MI. If you diagnose a patient with pericarditis, you really need to exclude myocarditis, as both can present together. So you need to have robust differential diagnosis, which includes, uh, you know, myocardial infarction, which is much more common. (laughs) (laughs) pericarditis which is much more common Uh, endocarditis which is also a sneaky diagnosis and then the super rare but interesting stress takasubu Takasubu. Takasubu. hey talk about the uh, management here what are we going to do with these cases myocarditis who do we send home uh yeah so uh pretty much no one (laughs) all right we're done you're done are you happy dr briggs i I know you really wanted to do this topic (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, I wanted to do preeclampsia because it's just so much sexier of a topic. But no, we had to do myocarditis. Next time, What's we the have plenty here? more podcasts together. <laughs> I know. We do. Admit all cases of suspected myocarditis. Really interesting here, Dr. Briggs. Look, mm-hmm. if the patient's asymptomatic with EKG changes suggestive of ischemia, a good story, elevated troponins, but no evidence of heart failure, symptomatic management indicated trend troponins. These patients have an excellent prognosis and a self-limited disease. Patients with pericarditis symptoms or EKG findings, elevated troponins, but no evidence of heart failure, symptomatic management, trend the troponins. These patients have myopericarditis and have low risk of heart failure, but need to be closely watched. Those with elevated troponins and evidence of acute heart failure have the potential to get really, really sick. That was kind of the patient that we presented here. All of these patients, though, if you're suspecting it, you're really admitting them Mm -hmm. to do all of this workup. You're not saying, okay, get an outpatient echo done if you're worried about myocarditis. And honestly, even if you don't think about myocarditis, like with the first group you mentioned, that sounded like really not sick at all. If you have an elevated troponin, in general, you're going to be admitted to the hospital. There you go. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I know, like, you have to take labs in context here. I'm not saying admit blindly and don't think about things, but. Honestly, like when have you not admitted an elevated troponin to the hospital with, with consistent young complaints, with consistent complaints? Right. Especially the young patient. Yeah. Young patient. You're not, you're not just doing Delta tropes on them and saying, oh, the Delta is not too bad. All right. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's, let's get them on their way. Yeah. You sure it's not in the heart pathway? All right. So, <laughs> hey, fulminant myocarditis, which sounds awful. Mm. That's any myocarditis with new onset heart failure requiring inotropic support, either by IV drugs or mechanical support. Uh, do you think these patients have a high mortality? <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> I know. I know. Hey, let's talk about standard therapy for these patients. And, and we're just going to get through this really quickly. This isn't a critical care podcast. There's a lot of cutting edge stuff we're not going to get into. But is if you have a patient in respiratory distress, NIPPV, you know, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation is indicated if the patient qualifies. You know, endotracheal intubation is needed if if you can't do positive pressure ventilation or if the patient fails positive pressure ventilation. And you're going to do standard therapy of acute heart failure here, you know, IV loop diuretic therapy, early initiation of an ACE inhibitor, like a rapid-acting ACE, like enalapril or captopril. And then you're going to talk about doing inotropic support in those with reduced EF and hypotension. What are kind of our main agents for that in the ED? Sure. Uh, so dobutamine is preferred. I'm sure there'll be a lot of drama. I know there'll be a lot of drama, though, when you talk to cardiology. And who knows, they might just say, oh, just change the just dopamine or something. I don't know. In those on chronic beta blocker therapy, milrinone is preferred as dobutamine is less effective. Again, a warning that PDE3 inhibitors, which milrinone is, are potent vasodilators. Epinephrine is another option. However, there is risk of vasoconstriction at high levels, which could worsen a patient's cardiac output. But remember, dobutamine is going to be your preferred. And then remember, mechanical circulatory support, you're talking about LVAD or ECMO in those who fail maximal medical therapy. A lot of these folks are young folks, so you should bust everything out for them, seriously. Growing evidence suggests that ECMO is more successful for these patients when started 
earlier in their resuscitation. So if you have someone that's young, that's acutely decompensating, you should be early about getting your ECMO team involved as opposed to later once your vasoactive agents have already been initiated and they failed. Perform emergent pericardiosynthesis at bedside if there is evidence of effusion in an unstable patient. That goes without saying. Antibiotics are actually rarely needed unless in the setting of a specific bacterial condition like rheumatic fever or sepsis. I'm sure antibiotics are going to be flowing so that you don't get that letter uh, from the hospital for sepsis. But that's that's besides the point. Flowing freely. Flowing freely. (laughs) Flowing freely, right? (laughs) The lactic acid is surely going to be up. But let's, let's get into their prognosis here. So it's not good. In one study of patients with diffuse and focal myocarditis on imaging, complete LV recovery at six months occurred at 81%. Those with fulminant myocarditis have a mortality rate, you know, hovering around 10 to 20%, which is high in the modern era. A significant number of patients might have lasting dilated cardiomyopathy. Right, and also understanding that these folks do require heart transplants are oftentimes candidates for heart transplants, um, you know, from myocarditis. So, uh, you know, prognosis is overall pretty grim. That's why it is important to try to diagnose this. You know, one of my mentors, um, the guy who actually wrote my med student letter of recommendation, he's an amazing researcher. Um, he's an MD, PhD, Dr. Neil Spector. Uh, he actually, unfortunately, um, developed uh, myocarditis. Oh His story is well known, actually. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. He received a transplant, but eventually succumbed uh, to it and died at a relatively young age, was just Mm. a brilliant uh, oncology researcher um, and one of my mentors. And it really is unfortunate and how devastating this can be because you'll see this in folks who are are quite young. So Mm -hmm. as much as this topic can be a bit nebulous and hard to wrap around, it is important to be quite aggressive uh, with your management of it. Yeah, don't just dismiss young people as having a cold and sending them out. Yep, and that's it. Hey, we'll come back with a little bit more interesting, I think, of a topic for EM docs. But uh, I'm glad you made me go through this topic, Dr. Briggs. I think it is, as I mentioned, especially at the tail end, a really important topic to know because of the morbidity and mortality associated with it and how oftentimes we diagnose it in the ED setting. So as we go out here, Dr. Briggs, anything else you want to plug? Uh, Probably the uh, rapid bombs. Yeah, rapid bombs, as we talked about before. Check it out. What's the URL that our readers can go to? Well, you can just go to our main website at emboardbombs.com or click on the hyperlink below this podcast episode. But if you want to go directly like you're sitting at your computer right now, you can go to emrapidbombs.supercast.tech and look at the show notes on this podcast. You got it. We've got detailed show notes uh, within each of those episodes that we drop, and we're at more than 120 episodes and counting. We're killing it. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. All right. Thanks for all the support out there. We'll see you next time.